welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I'm your host, Danny, and for this episode, you and I are travelling back in time within the language that I'm speaking right now. We're heading back to Old English. Dr. Stephen Hopkins, the philologist himself, is joining me to introduce this foreign yet familiar language and share a little of his great love for the world of Old English. So, for this episode of A Language I Love Is, I have the absolute joy to be here, well, virtually here, with Dr. Stephen Hopkins, who is Assistant Professor of Early Medieval Languages and Literature at the University of Virginia, formerly of the Universities of Florida and Indiana. And Stephen will be known to many people online as a one-man factory of the very best medieval and linguistic jokes and memory. So this is a real treat for me and for all to spend time with someone who really knows what he's talking about and is used to presenting it in a fantastic and very engaging way. So, Stephen, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? Thanks very much for that lovely introduction, Danny. I'm doing great. I feel like you maybe have over- oversold me a little bit in terms of knowing what I'm talking about, but I'm here to do my best. Well, I'm English and I'm all for self-deprecation, but I stand by what I said in that introduction. You know your stuff. I've seen both your YouTube videos, I've seen your academic work, and I have your impressive output of memory and online humor. So, you know, I'm really excited for this and I think this is going to be a great introduction. The way this podcast works, as longtime listeners will be aware, is that this is about one host, that's me, one guest, that's you, Stephen, and one language that my guest has a particular fondness for. So please tell us, what is a language that you love? A language I love is Old English. Excellent. Ah, excellent. Okay. This is a language I will admit that I have some familiarity with, and I share your enthusiasm for Old English too. So let's start with the basics. Old English, I mean, as a name for the language, it's fairly transparent. I think people can guess. This is an older form of the English language. But, you know, we're talking some serious antiquity. There's a a big time gap between the present day and present day English and when people are speaking Old English. So let's set the scene first in terms of time. When roughly are people speaking Old English? Great question. Um, A common misconception when I tell, you know, I try not to tell innocent bystanders what I do. But if I do, usually when I say Old English, they're like, oh, Shakespeare? So Old English is much older than that, right? It's the oldest stage of the language that we have evidence for. We can say roughly that Old English is spoken from the 5th century on up through the year 1100, maybe even a little bit after 1100. And so our earliest sources then for Old English, I imagine that they are just starting to kind of peter in, in bits and bobs. What are our earliest sources then for Old English? What does it look like? Is it lots of big texts or do they start to enter the historical record in a very piecemeal kind of way? Some of the earliest, earliest bits are, in fact, just bits. Uh, I think you featured one on your own website recently, the uh, reindeer bone, right, that just says Fran. So we have evidence as early as that. But as far as substantial writings go, uh, we get we get law codes 
creeping in um, in the 600s. A lot of our earliest texts are either ecclesiastical or legal in that sense, um, and they're going to begin you know, in the 600s, there's also a series of massive glosses that come from that early period. But if we're being honest, those are not the texts that most people know and love Old English from. Um, as far as the stuff that is actually beloved today, uh, there's a lot of, there's kind of an explosion of vernacular writing in Old English starting after, you know, the 800s through the 900s and up through the, um, through the turn of the millennium. Right. Okay. So we're dealing with a fantastically well-developed literary culture. Old English is being used for all sorts of ways, which is interesting. And people might not think this because some people have assumptions about the early Middle Ages that if there was writing in Western Europe, it was in Latin. But no, English has this fantastic uh, written culture. So you mentioned 1100 as sort of end date for the period when people are speaking Old English. But how good a date is that for our purposes? What happens around that time that could allow us to say Old English is now over? What I'm really referring to there obliquely is the Norman Conquest, of course, in 1066. Um, and so that's sort of the traditional, you know, bookend uh, for the end of the Old English period. But as you know, and any of our linguistically oriented listeners know, languages don't begin and end with discrete little lines in the sand. So yes, the Norman Conquest happens in 1066. And yes, uh, William the Conqueror brings all sorts of French-speaking nobility over with him from Normandy. But we do know from various chronicle sources, um, marginal sources, and even some homilies and things that continue to be copied after that, that there's a very, very blurry line between late Old English and early Middle English. Um, and that line continues to be blurry, at least in, through the 1100s, I would say. I'm imagining then that Middle English, the stuff that comes afterwards, is perhaps a bit more comprehensible to us today. It's being heavily affected by the Normans and by French. Uh, we're getting this massive influx of loan words uh, into English from French that you know still integral to the English language today. Before that stage then, what does Old English look like? Is it very different? Is it something that you and I as English speakers, if we didn't have our, you know, our academic training, is it something that we could easily understand? It is a foreign language. In fact, I'm teaching it right now at, um, to some undergrads and, and graduate students. And um, that was the first thing I told them on the first day is that this is a foreign language. We are in a language class. So, you know, you're going to need to do all the things that you do when when you're learning something that is different from English, uh, even though it has English in the title of it. Old English features uh, a lot of grammatical complexity that characterizes a lot of the older Indo-European languages, right? As far as um, verbal morphology goes, we've got a slightly more robust set of endings on our verbs than, than in modern English. And in, I think where it really makes a difference and maybe where it frightens some students at first is the case system with the nouns, right? Um, sort of like modern German or Russian or, um, or if you've taken Latin or anything like that, you'll know cases are, you know, when we change the shape of a noun to give it a grammatical role or a syntactic role in the sentence. Uh, modern English has gotten rid of those, right? That's sort of, the, that's part of what characterizes the transition from Old to Middle English as some of these cases are falling away. By the time we get to Modern English, the case endings are almost completely gone, except for S, 
um, right, for the to show possession or to show plurals. And so, yeah, Old English does have this robust case system where all the nouns will change their shape. They can be masculine, they can be feminine, they can be neuter, and they have all sorts of forms that correspond to those. Yes. So I'm imagining then that Old English is really like a lot of its historical cousins elsewhere in Europe and beyond. So you're mentioning all these things like cases, you're mentioning verbal morphology. So the endings of verbs are changing much more than they do in modern English. So really, a, a little bit of Latin would be extremely useful. These are concepts that you will find elsewhere. Which leads me to ask then, what about then English's connections to the continent? Where does Old English come from and what might be its genealogy? What are its sisters and cousins and what is the larger family to which English belongs? And what are the languages with which Old English might actually share a great affinity? So within the Indo-European family, um, you know, we have all sorts of, of subfamilies, Germanic, Celtic, Romance, these sorts of things. So it, it's in the larger Germanic family alongside things like, you know, Old Norse, uh, Old Saxon, Old High German, languages that, you know, eventually give us modern Icelandic, uh, modern Danish, Swedish, uh, German, Dutch, Frisian even. So, you know, those are the those are sort of the sister languages today. And historically, you know, they've all been even more closely related than they might appear or sound today. It is West Germanic as opposed to, you know, North Germanic, which are the Scandinavian languages today, and East Germanic, which is Gothic and maybe that one weird variant that survived in the 1600s, maybe if we're lucky. Right. Okay. So this is English's immediate family of languages. Beyond Germanic then, as you say, it's it's Indo-European. So let's talk then about the history of English. We're imagining that prior to our earliest sources, what became Old English and what would go on to become Modern English is, you know, happily living as a language on the continents, living within continental Europe. What happens then? How does this language, which has so much in common with German, how does that then get transposed onto the island of Great Britain? And so the birth of English begins. To answer that question, of course, I have to lean a little bit more on history. And at least in that field, this is a contentious question. The Venerable Bede tells us, you know, in his ecclesiastical history of the English people, written around the early 700s, he says that the Romano-Britons, um, who were, you know, on the island when it was a Roman territory, once the Roman soldiers leave, they start getting all sorts of trouble with pirates and invasions and things. And so in order to defend themselves, the story goes, they hire mercenaries from um, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, these tribes uh, that live in what is now northern Germany um, and and a little bit of like Denmark and some of that area. And they come over, and so Bede's story goes, they like the land, they like what they see, they see that these Romano-Britons are not fighters, so they decide that they're just going to stay and keep the land for themselves and push the Romano-Britons further and further west uh, into what eventually would become Wales, and that they just sort of take over in a, in a series of mass migrations. Of course, that's the nature of that is now disputed, but that's the traditional narrative of how English goes from being basically Old Saxon and coming over and becoming English in, you know, the Saxon that is spoken in England. Yes, I'm aware that this is a very murky period of history and there are all sorts of competing theories as to how English arrives on the shores of Great Britain and Bede's account is 
important but not given much credence today. Whatever happens, English turns out to be tremendously linguistically successful as a language. It gets spread across what becomes England. Leaving aside the matter of people, let's not forget that languages are not people and people are not languages. Whatever happens, the situation is very favourable to the spread of English. So if you wind forward the clock by a couple of centuries, let's say to maybe the year 800, what's then the situation of Old English? It seems to be well established in several kingdoms and England is quite disunited politically. Are there different dialects of Old English? So especially by the year 800, um, you know, we've got at least seven major, sometimes more, kingdoms vying for supremacy in England, right? Um, you've got the Northumbrians who start out as very powerful early on. Then you've got down south, you've got places like the Mercians, the Anglians, uh, Sussex, Wessex, and all of these. Each of these areas has identifiable dialect characteristics. Um, and so you know, we can tell when we're looking at an old English text, you know, was this, if we find Northumbrian features, that means it was probably composed up there, but it might also mean that it's older, right? Or or Anglian or Mercian are also considered archaisms. If we skip forward a century, that's when things get interesting, uh, at least for modern students of old English, right? Because most of what survives today, like if you learn old English and you go to read these things yourself, you're gonna be reading a late West Saxon version of them which is interesting because late West Saxon does not start. I mean, you can tell from the name, it doesn't start out as important. Um, and it's not even very well attested until after um, the time of King Alfred. I see. I see. So most of what we have then is from one particular dialect of Old English. Does that mean that we don't have a full picture of this language, that actually there could be a lot more variation, but our sources don't capture that? Fair question, and it's hard to answer it since it is based on lack of evidence. But, you know, these texts are being written down by scribes from certain areas, right? And those scribes are going to be spelling, well, they think they're spelling phonetically. And to be fair to them, they're spelling more phonetically than we do today. So one base assumption is when you're reading an old English manuscript, the scribe is trying to spell how they speak. But it gets more complicated than that because sometimes they're copying an older text that's from another region or from another dialect, right? And then the question is, what do they do with these archaic forms or even these archaic vocabulary words that maybe they don't know anymore? Um, so sometimes they'll try to update the language, right? Modernize it, if you will. It's kind of funny to think about late West Saxon as modernized Old English, quote unquote. But as of the year 900 or so, that is what it represents is sort of, yeah, a simplification. Like you said, we don't get the full picture of what was behind these exemplars. Um, and Old English is in an interesting place regarding manuscripts, too, because so many of the texts, um, especially the poetic texts, exist in one single manuscript copy. We have multiple copies of almost nothing, right? Um, we've made it a good way into this podcast and have not said the word Beowulf yet, um, so that's probably points off for that. But yeah, Beowulf exists in one copy. Uh, basically, everything that you read in Old English exists in a single copy if it's poetic. So obviously, those texts came from somewhere and their exemplars would presumably have had more variation in terms of dialect and, and things like that. Yes. Yeah, so something like Beowulf then, that really interests me because 
I'm presuming then, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm presuming that the people who are writing our Old English sources and the people that we have to thank are Christians. There's a long connection between Christianity and writing. And yet, is it true then that a lot of these texts, especially the poetic texts, are the product of a pre-Christian culture of storytelling and of composing poetry. So I'm just interested, can you expand on who is writing these texts? Who are they personally? And why would they both be writing, say, religious Christian texts, but also something like Beowulf, which isn't particularly Christian? What's going on with the authors of Old English? Like all excellent questions, it's hard to answer. Yes, we do know for sure that the people who have access to literacy are going to be either monks or some, you know, somehow associated with ecclesiastical power centers. So yes, they're Christian. And yes, a lot of what they copy is transparently Christian. I mean, if you look at the actual corpus, uh, the whole corpus, prose, poetry, all of it together, the poetic portion is actually a lot smaller than you might expect, given what English departments usually focus on, right? The poetic part is only like, I don't know, five to 7% of the total corpus. Um, 90% of it is things like homilies, law codes, chronicles, things like that. So I think that, or it gives you an idea of the utilitarian uses that writing is put to, right? Monasteries need to keep a record of history. They need to keep records in general. Kings need laws, all that sort of thing. That said, when it comes to the poetry, you can see a lot of what I think is cultural hybridity. You know, some of these old English poems, like you said, are focusing on, you know, Beowulf is about a Danish hero. It's not set in England. It's not obviously Christian. There are a few moments where their narrator references a god um, rather than what we might think of as the heathen pantheon, you know, Thor, Odin and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's it's a very interesting blend. There are other texts that I think are even more blended and, and more interestingly hybrid. Things like the Exeter book riddles, um, where you have this very learned tradition of riddles that comes from Latin, right? So obviously the monks are going to be learning um, Aldhelm's Enigmata and, and Tatwina's and Symphosius's riddles. Uh, those were all coming from Latin, but it seems like somebody wanted to transfer that <laughs> mode into Old English. When they did, though, they pick some objects or some, some of these poems, they raise an eyebrow, right? If we're thinking about a monk sitting alone in a cell, some of these riddles are quite dirty sexually, right? Some of them are very poetic and unusual in the way that they're comparing uh, everyday objects with divine objects, right? They cross a lot of boundaries in some interesting ways. Um, and perhaps the most bizarre texts in the corpus are things like the metrical charms, which are, you know, they're meant to be healing texts. They're meant to be charms that you would recite if you have, you know, cattle blight or if your crops are dying or whatever. You would recite one of these poems and they weave together, you know, you could be calling out to an unknown goddess like Erka, right? Or you could be calling out to saying multiple paternosters in the same breath. So again, there's this this fusion of cultures that exists at different registers and that's blended together in some really fascinating ways, all the way up the chain from simple prose texts all the way to, to poetic texts and even art objects like the Frank's casket. Um, you get some really interesting juxtapositions and in, in a synthesis of what it meant to be a Christian, but in this culture that had this long tradition that, that predated any conversion. Excellent. Okay, so that's a good summary of where we're at. One final question, though, comes to mind. It's great 
that, as you say, we have a pretty broad spread of sources for Old English in terms of genre, right? So it's not just biblical texts. It's not just, you know, things that are the product of Christianity. We're also getting poetry, riddles. And that's, you know, that's a great spread. But are we getting much language from people who aren't part of official structures, people who aren't kings, people who aren't part of the church? Is it fair to say that literacy was still pretty exclusive? Or do we have examples of Old English where, you know, they're coming from other people in society, women, for example? Is there any trace of, say, written vernacular Old English? There are some folks who are studying, especially like women as scribes. We know that it wasn't just monasteries where texts were being produced. Um, Nuns were writing texts as well. Of course, and this brings me to like one of my go-to jokes about Old English, I tell my students that every text was written by the same author. And they're like, wow. And I tell them anonymous, right? In the early <laughs> Middle Ages, anonymous, anonymous authorship was, was the norm for the most part. So much so that if you wanted to write a bestseller and you wanted people to care about it, you needed to attribute it to someone else, someone like Augustine or something like that. So we have all these texts by pseudo-Augustine. And so, yeah that sort of cloak of anonymity makes it hard to tell exactly who actually is copying these things. Um, I think for much of the 20th century and, and of course the 19th century, scholarship assumed that if it was written down, it must have been by a Christian man, right? I think scholarship now is pushing back on that uh, because it's not a very realistic image of, of who uses language that we know from real life. As far as like everyday spoken Old English, that's an interesting question. I'm trying to, I'm racking my brain to think about what that might look like. One example that comes to mind is Alfrich, who is this great teacher who, who's living around the year 1000. He writes a ton of homilies. He writes some grammatical treatises. He's a teacher through and through to teach, to help teach his young um, novitiates for monasteries to teach in Latin for the first time. He comes up with this colloquy, um, is what he calls it, that is basically it's basically a language textbook, you know, when we're learning Spanish 101 or something, right? We get all these little dialogues that are like, hola, me llamo, blah, 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 right? And you take turns practicing the lines. That's what Alfred's colloquy is, is he's um, he gives you all sorts of dialogues. The question is, how realistic are those? But if they were meant to be used by real native Old English speakers, they must have been somewhat naturalistic, right? And so, yeah, so they're so that text can give us sort of a, a glimpse, possibly. Um, and of course, there are also runic inscriptions here and there that are sometimes hard to parse, and they're necessarily going to be short texts because of, of the nature of like, you know, carving on a stick or carving on a church wall or something like that. But, you know, those can give us gl glimpses of maybe non-elite voices in Old English. What we really have with Old English then is a good window, but an imperfect window onto the life of this language. It's pretty good, good broad range of genre, good broad range of people, but there's a lot that historians have to then imply in terms of the actual context, the people beyond the text. That makes sense. After all, it is a historical language and it is now a thousand years ago. I feel like we're in a very good position now vis-a-vis -vis Old English, vis-a-vis -vis what we know about this language, what it was like, its history, its relationships to other language. But let's now take this language out of the past and let's bring it firmly into the present, specifically into present-day Virginia, because I want to talk about yourself. 
What is your relationship to Old English? How did you come to study this language? And what role does it play in your life today? Today, it is my bread and butter. It is my job, the main portion of my job. But that was not always the case. When I began undergraduate study, I had not heard of Old English. I didn't know that there were linguistic stages even, right? I went into um, undergraduate wanting to be some kind of archaeologist or historian-ish thing, but I didn't have a clear conception of what that would mean or what that could mean. And so, one thank goodness, with the linguistic major, I was required to take a history of the English language class my first semester. And that class absolutely changed my trajectory. It changed my life. Because I just felt like, you know, once I started seeing what Old English was like, and there was a sort of uncanny similarity, there were, I could pick out words, I could sort of make out texts, but the closer I got to it, you know, the stranger it seemed. But once I started identifying patterns, you know, and I realized, oh, there's a logic behind why English is weird today. This is why we have irregular plurals, right? Or this is why, you know, we spell things the way they do. Uh, Old English was kind of like seeing the Matrix, I could just understand patterns and things that had baffled me about modern English for a long time. And suddenly it was all coming into focus and all making sense for the first time. And what was it like then, the process of learning Old English, specifically the classroom experience? Do you feel like it was a long time to kind of get fluent with Old English? Or was it something that came quite quickly to you being a native speaker of English? So as I said, I came to... Old English through a history of the English language class. Um, I was lucky enough at Miami University in Ohio, um, in Oxford, Ohio, actually, so I can claim to have been educated in Ann Oxford. But my professor there was amazing, uh, Patrick Murphy. He still teaches there. Uh, he's an expert on things like the Exeter book riddles. And I think that sort of gives you a hint as to what his classroom was like. It was fun, like the riddles, but it was also very intellectually challenging, like the riddles. He basically gave us bits of old English, like little pieces of a puzzle. Um, you know, he would give us the Lord's Prayer or something in old English and just ask us to make out as much as you can. Right. And this was a history of the English language class rather than old English proper. So I got to toy around with it. I got to look things up. I was just a first year student at that point. So I didn't really have a I thought I was going to continue going on with archaeology and, and a linguistics major. But, you know, I at least knew that old English existed and I knew that I loved it. Uh, so I went on with my undergraduate studies, actually trying to make fetch happen with archaeology. But it was just a very bad fit for me personality-wise. While I enjoy the great outdoors, I do not enjoy them for 12 hours or more at a stretch. I don't really want to get my hands dirty. And the worst part is I hate jigsaw puzzles. So those three combined, archaeology is kind of my personal hell. It took me about one and a half semesters to figure that out. At that point, I didn't know what to do, though. I didn't know you were allowed to change majors. I kind of felt like I made a promise and I should you know, keep my word or something. I don't know. So I was like, well, I've got to make anthropology work. And I pivoted to linguistic anthropology because thankfully that was a thing. Um, and coupled with the linguistic double major, I was taking a lot of languages all through undergrad. You know, I was um, a classics minor, so lots of Latin and Greek, but I was also dabbling with things like Arabic for a year, Mandarin for another year, um, things like that. By the time I got to the end of undergraduate, though, that was when I had decided that, you know what, I'm done pretending to be an anthropologist. I'm going to use my senior honors thesis to do the thing that I've wanted to do all along. And so I knew I wanted to do Old English. I had arranged with that professor, with Dr. Murphy, to take 
Old English at the graduate level um, as a senior. And he was also teaching a seminar on Beowulf the same semester. So it was just like, I did a complete 180. I decided I was going to do nothing but early medieval that whole last year uh, and finish out the way that, you know, I wanted to all along. So, so yeah, as far as learning the language went, we used Peter Baker's textbook, uh, which is, you know, a fantastically accessible and um, kind, but still linguistically thorough approach to the language. And yeah, for me, fluency, such as it is, um, just came from translating week in and week out, lots of texts, you know, in their entirety, just spending a lot of time with the dictionaries with Bosworth and Toller, and just trying to wrap my head around this beautiful language that was somehow still evasive. I will say the the turn from interested student to actual researcher for me came kind of by accident. I told you I wanted to write that senior honors thesis on Old English. I had no idea what I wanted to write about. Um, so I'm literally wandering through the stacks of my institution's library, looking through the PRs, trying to find something in Old English that would catch my eye. And I've always been a big Tolkien fan, lifelong nerd there. Um, and I just happened to see this really thin little blue book that said Tolkien Exodus. And I was like, oh, what's that? I pulled it off the shelf and it was Tolkien's critical edition, posthumous critical edition of the old English poem Exodus. It's very small. You know, it's less than 100 pages, I think. I sat down with it on the floor in the stacks and was just instantly mesmerized. I literally read that whole book sitting on the floor in one go. And then, of course, I had to check it out and go home because the librarians needed to shut the lights off and uh, get on with their lives. So, yeah, it was kind of destiny. After I found that poem, um, that's what I wrote on. I, I loved it. I took it home. I obsessed over it endlessly for that entire school year, basically. And then by the end, you know, I was trying to get into graduate programs uh, to either do medieval studies or to do some kind of English-based program that had a strong medieval component so that I could continue doing Old English. Super. So a real combination of chance or, or destiny, as you put it, but also good teachers and great opportunities to study a language like Old English. You know, the door was held open to you and you entered the world of Old English. It's super. So in terms of the language specifically, what is something that you love about Old English? It could be anything. It could be a feature of its grammar or a feature of its sounds or something about its orthography. Tell us something that you just think, wow, something that when you first came across it, you thought, this is really cool. One thing I've already mentioned is what I would call the uncanny beauty of Old English, right? It's so similar to modern English at first glance. Um, or maybe it's not, depending on how, what you glance at. But, you know, there, there's this inherent similarity. And yet it seems like, you know, it seems like this is my language, but then it's really not. You get glimpses of the past in its phrases and in its vocabulary. And, and I just love pursuing a lot of these unusual words and trying to trace their etymologies to see, you know, how did they express concepts? How did they make new words, right? especially through compounding. Um, how do they make words to create sort of poetic descriptions uh, of the world around them? Um, I will say that the other thing that I absolutely love related to that is the poetry itself. I love its actual poetics. Um, I love reading it out loud to hear its sort of slow, steady, methodical, um, almost hypnotic sense, right? It's alliterative and it's accentual, so accent matters, um, and so does alliteration. 
right? There's no, they're, they're not worried about end rhyme or, or meter or feet or things like that. It's sort of this slow, steadily advancing narrative that um, just piles on alliteration upon alliteration. And I find that soothing, um, even when the poems are about very depressing things. Do you have an example to hand? I have Exodus here with me because I always have it with me. I'll read to you from a passage at the end of the poem. Um, So Exodus is telling us the biblical narrative of the Israelites fleeing slavery in Egypt, just like the biblical book of the same name. Um, And at this point, the Egyptians have pursued the Israelites into the parted, miraculously parted Red Sea. Um, The Israelites are out and the waves are about to crash down on the Egyptians. And it says, There er weyes lagon, mere morgore, meyen was drenched, strema storum, storm up yawad, hark to heavenum, here wop a mast, lade chirndon, luft up yeswark, feyem stavenum, flowed blowed ye wod, rangori weren rovene, rode or sweepode, meredath a mast. Wow, sounds so pleasant. It sounds like we're in the Mead Hall back all those centuries ago. That's superb. Thank you. Love that section because it is a very rare instance of triple rhyme in a line for artistic effect, right? I just told you that rhyme doesn't matter in Old English, but uh, we, as the waves come crashing down on the Egyptians, flowed, blowed, you woad, right? Blood pervades the flood. Um, the Egyptians get crushed, as it were, and they they use the rhyme to really emphasize this highly unusual thing going on in a highly unusual sonic manner. On to now the third question that is part of the format of this whole show. What is something that you want the good people at home to know about with regards to Old English? What is something that you want to impress upon people? You've already mentioned, you know, the very exhausting habit of this isn't Shakespeare, but something that say, you know, you've got a willing audience here, something that you want to impart to them. I love Kenning's. Kennings are a compound, like a metaphorical compound that Old English and Old Norse are especially fond of, right? They're sort of poetic circumlocations. They're ways to talk around an idea without actually saying what the thing is. Uh, You can think of them as poetic renamings. Old English is already very adept at compounding, building compounds out of nouns um, to describe things that they haven't talked about before. So what they'll do is they'll build a compound for a common word Oftentimes they're doing this to get alliteration because again, the poetic meter demands that a word in the first half of the verse um, alliterates with one of the main stress words in the the back half of the verse. Um, So what that means is if you want to talk about a king, you have to find lots of words and phrases for king that alliterate on different letters, right? Besides just CCC for cooning, cooning, cooning. So for example, They've come up with a system of references, things they'll call a king, a ring giver, right? A, a ring giver um, that could alliterate on HR, uh, or, or he'll be a gold giver, right? And that can work in lines that start with G. But some of these compounds, some of these kinnings are really interesting and, and beautiful in their own way. Something like calling the sun heaven candle, right? The candle of the heavens, or heaven's yim, the gemstone of the heavens. Beowulf, a famous example, is the Hronrade, right? The whale's writing for, for the ocean, or the sail rod, the, the sail road. And so the poetry is full of all of these things that sometimes give a very poignant picture of what the poem's talking about. Uh, one of my favorites is Sword Slap, 
which means the sleep of the sword. And that's a, a kenning for death, right? You know, there's bon who's the bone house for your body. Um, they're not all blood and gore, though. Some of them are interesting, like word hoard, right? A store of words, vocabulary, you might say. Jesus is followed around by learning knictas in, in Alfred's translation of the Gospels, right? His learning knights rather than disciples. So there's all these interesting descriptions that the poetry is just chock full of. And I think it's very, I would argue that that's probably what suckered me into learning this language in the first place was just finding these compounds and wanting more of them and wanting to decode them and think about what they mean. Never thought of kennings that way before. That's so interesting. The idea that the limitations, the constraints of poetry are responsible for this tremendous creativity. Well, uh, I think that's a great place to end. Uh, one final question from me is that if people want to hear more about the wonderful stuff that you do with Old English, where on the good internet can they find you? Find me at Twitter at Phil underscore Lowell underscore Ogist, right? Philologist. Um, they can find me on my personal website, stephencehopkins.wordpress.com. Um, and they can find me on academia.edu, which is the LinkedIn for scholars. I've always been in awe of your Twitter handle. It's, it's something I wish that I thought of myself. I mean, and it's perfect for you. You really do put the lol into philologists. So fantastic. Good. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, well, till the next time then. Thank you for having me. To end with a final fun fact, I'd like to pick up on something that Stephen mentioned earlier and highlight a very cool object. It's a bone from the ankle of a deer, no more than a couple of centimetres in length and width, and it was found in the village of Caster St Edmund in Norfolk in 1937. It's faintly inscribed with six runes, spelling the word Reichan, meaning a roe deer. This small bone preserves a small inscription that is a contender for the oldest recorded word of English. Dating to the middle of the 5th century AD, this fragment of language is so old that it's debated whether we can call its language Old English or Pre-Old English. One typical sound of Old English is the long vowel ah, as in words like barn, starn, ak, and ra, which have since become bone, stone, oak, and row. Yet we can tell that at an earlier stage, this ah vowel was once I, and this bone, with its word Reichan, shows that earlier stage of English. Whether it's Old English or not, it's safe to say it's very old. That's everything for this week's episode of A Language I Love Is. If you're enjoying the show, please do leave a review and recommend the podcast. Getting the word out is much appreciated and helps the show to grow. Till the next time then, bye-bye.